Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Helen Norton, professor of law at the University of Colorado Boulder. We'll be discussing your article, What 21st Century Free Speech Law Means for Securities Regulation, which is forthcoming in the Notre Dame Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Helen, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Helen, I'm really excited to have you on the show because you are going to be speaking about issues and areas of law that are perhaps unfamiliar to securities regulation or business in general, and perhaps are unfamiliar with a lot of listeners of the show, but that I think we're seeing will become increasingly important in the years to come. So I'm excited to have a First Amendment scholar such as yourself to come on the show and talk about some of the intersections that we are seeing today with securities law. But to start the conversation, I'd like to start from the beginning in terms of traditionally, how does securities law, securities regulation constrain or control speech? corporate speech or speech about securities in general? And what's the purpose of those constraints or restrictions? So it turns out that securities law regulates speech in several ways. It does so through anti-fraud rules that prohibit false and misleading speech about securities. It does so through mandatory disclosure rules that require accurate and comparable disclosures about securities-related matters. And it does so through the gun-jumping rules that tie the timing of securities offers and sales to the submission and the review and the delivery of required disclosures. And these rules, gun-jumping rules, seek to ensure that disclosures are made at a time and in a way that meaningfully informs investors' decisions. So you asked why. Why does securities law regulate speech? in these ways. The primary answer is to inform and protect investors in their decisions to buy, sell, or hold securities and in their exercise of corporate governance responsibilities. And it turns out that by informing and protecting investors, the primary function of these rules, securities laws are also trying to accomplish several related objectives, like maintaining fair and orderly and efficient markets, facilitating capital formation, like ameliorating, if not avoiding, the potential for systemic economic collapse. These are multiple functions that overlap with and reinforce each other. And they're especially important in the securities law context for reasons that I want to flag. I want to very briefly note a few key differences between securities and other things that are sold. And it turns out that these differences intensify the importance and the value of accurate securities-related information to investors as listeners. So first, securities are what economists call credence goods. They're goods characterized by especially pronounced informational asymmetries between sellers and buyers because the potential buyers of credence goods can't assess those goods' value through traditional means, like inspecting them before purchase or experiencing them after purchase. Securities law, and especially the mandatory disclosures, help fill these informational gaps by requiring the sellers of securities to disclose information about those companies. And second, investors rarely make a simple yes or no decision about whether to invest in a single company. Instead, they frequently choose among multiple investment options. So standardized and accurate disclosures 
provide comparable information about competing opportunities, and so they help investors distinguish well-managed companies from poorly managed companies. Next, investors are heterogeneous. They use different methods for assessing value and risk. And some investors are interested not only that a company generates profits, but they're also interested in how a company generates profits. And mandatory disclosures seek to provide diverse investors with data they find relevant. And finally, securities differ from pretty much any other goods because of the governance rights and responsibilities that accompany securities purchase like electing a corporation's board of directors or approving or disapproving mergers and acquisitions. So mandatory disclosures help inform these decisions as well. All of this is to say that the securities market is unusually vulnerable to asymmetries of information between speakers and listeners. And so securities law regulates speech to address those asymmetries. Thank you for that introduction to the purposes behind regulating speech in the securities context, regulating what one may say or must say or when something can be said. I'd like to step back for a moment from the securities domain and think more broadly about recent developments in constitutional law, particularly at the Supreme Court. There are perhaps two recent trends or developments or turns. The first is what has been described as the turn toward a First Amendment Lochnerism in the regulatory space. And then more recently, perhaps, we've seen the rise of history as an interpretive methodology really gain a lot of traction within Supreme Court jurisprudence. I wondered if you could talk about those two trends or if they are separate trends or are they part and parcel of the same dynamic? Could you introduce what's happening there, particularly for listeners who may not be con law scholars or experts? I think they're related but separate trends. So focusing on the first one you raised, what some folks call the lockerization of the First Amendment or some folks call the weaponization of the First Amendment. My paper calls it the anti-regulatory turn in the Supreme Court's 21st century free speech clause doctrine. This is a turn that has inspired corporate speakers' increasingly successful efforts to resist regulation in a variety of settings. And there are several doctrinal shifts that accomplish this anti-regulatory turn. First, the court increasingly characterizes the target of government regulation as constitutionally protected speech rather than unprotected economic conduct. Second, the court increasingly scrutinizes the government's compelled informational disclosures when the government requires speakers to disclose truthful facts. The court increasingly scrutinizes these required disclosures with growing skepticism. And third, the court threatens to apply its most suspicious review, strict scrutiny, whenever the government regulates on the basis of expression's content, even absent any indications that the government's motive was self-interested or intolerant or otherwise sensorial. So in these decisions, the court's majority, this is most relevant to our talk today, the court's majority made no effort to explain or distinguish the many examples where the government has long regulated on the basis of content without triggering First Amendment attention, much less concern. And as Justice Breyer observed in resisting this trend, these many examples of the government's longtime non-controversial content-based regulation include, in his words, the government's regulation of securities, the government's regulation of energy conservation labeling practices, of doctor-patient confidentiality, of income tax statements, and more. This is a pretty significant development in the regulatory space in general, not just securities regulation, but regulation writ large. Are there any signs that this turn in First Amendment jurisprudence 
might be headed towards securities regulation? Is it already bearing down on securities regulation? Is this something that's already happening? What's the lay of the land there? Until recently, securities law regulated speech with little, if any, First Amendment controversy. And the Supreme Court itself has yet squarely to consider the constitutionality of securities law from a First Amendment perspective. But on a number of occasions in the late 20th century in dicta, it suggested that the free speech clause poses no bar to the regulation of securities-related speech. And during this time period as well, many thoughtful commentators similarly described the government regulation of securities-related speech as exempt from traditional free speech clause review. But everything's changed with the contemporary anti-regulatory turn in the Supreme Court's free speech clause doctrine. And it's inspired new efforts to resist economic regulation in a variety of settings. And those settings now include securities law. Among the most prominent examples is the fact that several state attorneys general have threatened First Amendment challenges to the SEC's proposed rules that would require companies to disclose the impacts of climate-related risks on their business or their business's contribution to climate-related risks. And also at stake are much older measures to inform and protect investors by regulating securities-related speech. The traditional view in Supreme Court dicta or from scholars or from the market is that securities communications are not subject to the First Amendment. Could you walk us through that? Is regulation of communication in the securities context something that is or ought to be protected by the First Amendment? How should we be thinking about that? For quite some period of time, again, the fact that securities law regulates speech in a variety of ways got pretty much zero First Amendment attention. The court has never squarely considered the First Amendment constitutionality of the securities laws, but seemed to assume it was innocuous regulation incident to economic regulation more broadly. Now, among the things that has changed in recent years, as you alluded to earlier, Andrew, is the Supreme Court's increasing intention to the use of history to control its constitutional decision-making. And now that the anti-regulatory turn has placed new pressure on the government's regulation of speech for economic purposes, including the government's regulation of securities-related speech, my paper defends the constitutionality of securities law. And more specifically, it makes the case for identifying securities-related speech as a category of speech unprotected by the First Amendment. And it turns out that over time, the court has identified a handful of categories of speech that are entirely unprotected by the First Amendment. And these categories include true threats, obscenity, fraud, child pornography and a couple of others. And throughout the 20th century, the court explained its approach in ways that sounded like cost-benefit analysis. In other words, it sounded like the court was saying these categories of speech are unprotected by the First Amendment because they provide very little First Amendment value, think child pornography, think true threats, while inflicting grave harm. But more recently, the 21st century court, and this is part of the anti-regulatory turn, now insists that its methodology for identifying these categories of unprotected speech turns entirely on history, turns entirely on whether the regulation of speech within that category has been historically treated as exempt from First Amendment scrutiny. And again, it said this is true of true threats and fighting words and obscenity and child pornography. And at the same time, the court also said there might be other categories of speech that have been historically treated as unprotected, even though we haven't yet considered them in our own case law. Now, this methodological turn, this history-only turn, has received plenty of criticism on both descriptive and normative grounds. In the interest of time, I'm not going to spend any more time on those critiques now, except to note that I share the critical view that historical analysis is neither the only nor necessarily the best 
tools for constitutional decision. But here in this paper, I'm trying to work within the court's doctrine, even while I'm critical of the doctrine. And in my paper, I propose that we recognize a category of unprotected securities-related speech that describes a speech on matters related to securities that have been historically regulated without triggering First Amendment scrutiny to serve the function of informing and protecting investors. In other words, in my view, we should start by thinking about why has the government long regulated speech in this category? What are the objectives? What are the functions that the government's trying to achieve? And then I think we should define the relevant category of unprotected speech as that which has long been regulated to serve those functions. So when we turn to the functions long served by securities law, we can see that the contemporary securities law framework continues a lengthy regulatory tradition that responds to securities markets' unique vulnerability to information asymmetries and the harms threatened by those asymmetries. And we can see, for example, that New Jersey required a variety of securities disclosures in the mid-19th century. Kansas, of course, in 1911, enacted the first in a wave of state blue sky laws that require companies to provide basic disclosures. And of course, Congress first enacted federal securities law nearly a century ago. But these laws continue an even more extended Anglo-American regulatory tradition. And as early as the early 18th century, as legal historian Stuart Banner has explained, he described the, quote, perceived differences between securities and older kinds of property, and especially the enhanced ability of sellers to manipulate prices and otherwise deceive buyers as leading first English and then American regulators to develop special statutory schemes that are targeted only at securities. And so Professor Banner concluded that most of today's regulatory techniques in the securities context were tried or at least suggested in the 18th and early 19th centuries. So in other words, today's securities laws address a problem that's far from the asymmetries between speakers and listeners, between sellers and investors. And today's securities law deploy a set of solutions to those problems that are far from new, anti-fraud rules and mandatory disclosures. And the threads that stitch this regulatory tradition together are the functions that it's long sought to achieve, informing and protecting investors. And of course, these functions also serve broader public regarding interests in market stability and in capital formation and in corporate accountability. And this regulatory tradition is necessarily speaker-based and content-based. It regulates certain speech by certain speakers precisely because those distinctions are relevant to the expression's potential for harm and value to listeners. And I think that securities law remains consistent with this lengthy regulatory tradition. And I think that securities law regulates within a category of unprotected securities-related speech when it responds to the realities that the risks to investors change over time and that investors evaluate those risks through a variety of methodologies. So in my view, this tradition encompasses disclosures that inform investors about risks and methodologies that were unknown to or unrecognized by past generations. Think of asbestos, fentanyl, and think now of climate change and cybersecurity. The fact that new risks to investors will arise and the fact that investors will generate new approaches to evaluating those risks is foreseeable. And within this regulatory tradition, even if the specific content of those emerging risks and methodologies is not. 
Let's say that the invitation comes to the Supreme Court in the form of a petition to weigh in fundamentally on the constitutionality of the 33 Act, the 34 Act, and other federal securities laws, and perhaps even state securities laws on First Amendment grounds. And let's say that the court takes up that invitation. If I'm, say, a member of the conservative majority on the court and I am bought into the turn, the anti-regulatory or deregulatory turn in First Amendment jurisprudence, and I am bought into the history-only methodological approach, yet I still want to perhaps save or uphold the constitutionality of these statutes. One, what are the potential risks for society if these statutes are held or significantly curtailed under First Amendment grounds, that's perhaps a question for us to consider. But two, if I do want to affirm the basic constitutionality of these statutes, what does my, say, majority opinion perhaps look like? Let me start with your question about risks and consequences first. If the court were to get one of these challenges, and if it were to decide to treat securities law as the content-based regulation of fully protected speech, if that's how they describe the regulation of security speech, That would require case-by-case application of strict scrutiny, court's most demanding review, to each of the anti-fraud, mandatory disclosure, and gun jumping rules. And given the demanding nature of strict scrutiny, and given the interrelated structure of the securities regulation framework, that sort of rule-by-rule adjudication would threaten to bring down the entire regulatory framework, in my view, to the detriment of investors, shareholders, and the public. So to get to your other question, how might the court, the current court, avoid this? So far, I've discussed one possibility, treating securities-related speech as a category of unprotected speech. And that takes up Chief Justice Roberts' invitation when he said, we have a handful of categories of unprotected speech. From now on, we're only going to identify them by identifying a longstanding historical tradition of regulating them, exempt from First Amendment review. And as I've discussed, I think the case can be made that securities-related speech is exactly that sort of category of unprotected speech because for centuries it has been regulated without triggering First Amendment review. I think there's another possibility, and my paper also considers commercial speech doctrine as a second possibility. So if the court chooses not to treat securities-related speech as a category of unprotected speech, it could perhaps describe it as a type of commercial speech. And under the court's commercial speech doctrine, listener-centered functions, again, do important work. Now, the court has never considered whether securities-related speech constitutes commercial speech for First Amendment purposes. The court has yet to define the universe of commercial speech, but at its core, at a minimum, commercial speech includes commercial advertising and other speech that proposes or negotiates the terms and conditions of the commercial transaction. And again, the court hasn't addressed this question, but a few lower courts have occasionally treated securities-related speech as a type of commercial speech. Long story short, in the late 20th century, the court divided the universe of commercial speech about the terms and conditions of a commercial transaction into three categories. First, it held that commercial speech that is false or misleading is entirely unprotected by the First Amendment because false or misleading speech frustrates listeners' interests. Listeners, consumers, have no interest in receiving false or misleading speech about the attributes of a good or service or Second, in contrast, the court held that accurate commercial speech usually serves listeners' interests. Usually it's good for consumers to know the truth about the stuff that they're thinking about buying. And so the court reviews the government's regulation of accurate commercial speech with some suspicion, but not the full suspicion of strict scrutiny 
applies a form of intermediate scrutiny to the government's regulation of accurate commercial speech. And under this intermediate scrutiny, the government wins some and loses some. And then finally, third and finally, the court distinguishes the government's requirements that commercial actors disclose accurate information to consumers, distinguishes those compelled accurate disclosures from the government's restrictions on accurate speech. And it's more deferential when the government requires commercial actors to tell the truth about their goods and services, because the court concludes that it's in listeners' interests, it's in consumers' interests to receive accurate information about those goods and services. So the government is advancing those interests when it requires commercial actors to tell the truth about their commercial transactions. So the court itself has noted that the commercial speech doctrine itself makes content-based distinctions precisely because those distinctions are key to identifying commercial speech that furthers listeners' decision-making or frustrates listeners' decision-making. And commercial speech that furthers listeners' decision-making gets protection, and commercial speech that frustrates listeners' decision-making does not get First Amendment protection. Now, for sure, the contemporary anti-regulatory turn in First Amendment law leads many to wonder whether the 21st century court still cares about listeners in the commercial speech context, whether the 21st century court now is more concerned with the First Amendment interests of commercial speakers rather than the First Amendment interests of consumers and other listeners. That's in play. But lower courts so far largely remain reluctant to upset this longstanding commercial speech doctrine that treats commercial speech that's false or misleading as entirely unprotected. And that applies more deferential review to the government's compelled commercial disclosures about factual matters. And in my view, with that background, I think much of today's securities law framework can and should satisfy commercial speech scrutiny so long as courts continue to tether their understanding of commercial expression's value and thus its First Amendment protection to that expression's capacity to inform listeners decision making. So that too, I think, is a second way in which even the contemporary court could preserve the securities law framework. Are there any key takeaways you would like listeners to have from this interview or from the paper? First, let me flag what I think are some key takeaways. We need to take away the fact that securities law is focused on the listeners, meaning investors. Securities law functions are all about informing investors' decisions about buying and selling and holding securities and also their decisions about exercising corporate governance functions. And that these listener-centered functions in turn also serve public regarding goals by facilitating stable and efficient markets, among other things. And I think a key takeaway, once we recognize why and how securities law regulates speech, is that this explains why it makes sense for securities law to regulate speech on the basis of content. Because the content of securities law speech, if it's accurate speech, that adds value to investors. And if it's inaccurate, if it's false or misleading speech, that frustrates listeners' interests, investors' interests. And I think these listener-centered functions, again, enable us to identify two pathways for understanding the constitutionality of the securities law frame, either as a category of unprotected speech that has long been regulated to serve investors' interests without triggering any First Amendment review, or second, under commercial speech doctrine, as a type of commercial speech that is regulated to serve listeners' interests in autonomous decision-making. Now, in terms of open questions, I've suggested these two pathways, but that courts could choose either of those pathways doesn't mean that they will choose any of them. And in my paper, I'm trying to inform those choices by showing how securities laws, longstanding listener-centered framework aligns with the theory and doctrine of free speech law. You can see how securities law and its attention to listeners 
aligns with theory and doctrine of free speech law, while at the same time, that theory and doctrine is under increasing pressure in the 21st century court's anti-regulatory term. So I think it's important to think about the fact that looking at this crease, this intersection between securities law and constitutional law, how it sheds light on the constitutional barriers that contemporary free speech law is now posing to longstanding economic regulation that includes but is not limited to securities law. And in my view, it also highlights the importance of identifying some principled limits, some principled guardrails on that anti-regulatory turn. So my paper seeks to propose some of those principled limits. Our guest today has been Helen Norton, professor of law at the University of Colorado Boulder. We've discussed her article, What 21st Century Free Speech Law Means for Securities Regulation, which is forthcoming in the Notre Dame Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Helen, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.